It is indeed a pleasure and a privilege to be here with you. As Father Jeremiah was saying at the beginning of the service, we have done a, a restructuring of the diocese, the Diocese of the Carolinas having congregations primarily in North Carolina and South Carolina, though there are a few outliers in Kentucky. Don't know how they got into the Carolinas, um, but they're actually there because the outlier is actually a couple of church plants out of a church in Columbia, Church of the Apostles in Columbia. They no doubt will find another diocese, but no time soon as we love working with the people who are part of those church plants. But we determined that it might be a more effective way to minister, to have our diocese divided into two areas, North Carolina and South Carolina. At that point, all of our bishops, four of us, were coastal South Carolina. Um, and so that didn't make much strategic sense to us. So Teresa, my wife, who's with us this morning, and I had been praying and had already begun to hear God say, go to North Carolina, uh, which is a place we lived and served before. But in fact, he got very specific, go to North Carolina to do the work of a bishop. So one thing led to another conversations with our diocesan bishop, Bishop Steve Wood, as he said, that's exactly the kind of thing that we need to do next. It's a conversation that had been taking place by the bishops at the time. And so about a year ago, we began this process of having our diocesan bishop, Bishop Steve Wood, still our bishop, and then a North Carolina area bishop and a South Carolina area bishop. Bishop David Bryan is the South Carolina area bishop, and then I serve as the North Carolina area bishop now. So it's my distinct privilege to begin to come to the congregations, um, some of whom I've known from years ago um, in the days of the Anglican Mission in America when some congregations were a part of that and then even more still that have been planted started in the days since that. It's a joy to be here with you, with Father Jeremiah and Rachel and their wonderful children. And I know you know the blessing you have in having him here as the vicar to serve, to preach, to teach and to pastor. As we turn to the word of God together, would you pray with me? Grant, Lord God, that my message and my speech might not be in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of your spirit and of your power, that our faith might not rest on the wisdom of man, but on the power of God. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Anybody in this room given to exaggerations? Or hyperbole, never. it's just never. That's right. Good. There we are. Case in point. I remember as a, as a child, I remember distinctly my father saying this, and he said it often. I'm so hungry I could eat a horse. I remember one of the first times hearing it, thinking, why would you do that? Why would you want to eat a horse? You're supposed to ride them. Why would you eat it? And then I started thinking about how much horse he would have to eat, which, of course, was the point of the hyperbole, right? I'm so hungry that you try to have a way to, to describe it that would have impact to say, this is how hungry I am, hungry enough to eat a horse. You know, every now and then we hear Jesus use a little hyperbole. And it's so tempting when we hear him do it to think, you know, you're overstating the point. You're making a much lesser point. 
when actually, whenever Jesus uses hyperbole, he does it to so rivet our attention that we'll realize you're saying more than we think you are. And so it is in the gospel reading that we've heard this morning. Maybe you were listening closely enough to really hear it as Jesus was saying, let me tell you, if, if you cause any of these little ones to sin, it would be better if a millstone, a huge rock, was tied to the end of a rope, thrown into the sea, you cast in with it, than for you to cause a little one to sin. But he went further, remember? He said, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter into hell without an eye, foot, or, or hand than without them to enter life. And as, as we hear that, you have to think, you know, Jesus, you're kind of going over the top here. I know what you're trying to do. You're trying to get our attention. And so you kind of got it because that's really kind of gross what you're saying. Cut off your hand, cut off your foot, yank out your eye. So you got our attention. But you see, Jesus is wanting to do far more than merely get our attention. He's wanting to impress our hearts with the significance of life. And so he uses things that mean so much to us in this life to draw us nearer to him. You know, at first I was thinking maybe what we could do after hearing that re reading is offer a little ministry time. And I could bring a saw or something so that if anyone realizes, oh, you know, I've been doing these terrible things. What do I do? I'd say, well, come here. We've got some ministry time going on. But that wouldn't work because that's not exactly what Jesus was getting at, was it? He wasn't saying focus on the cut off the hand because after all, in Mark chapter seven, it already made it so clear that sin doesn't come from the external. It comes from the heart. You see, Jesus, in this gospel reading that we read, that Father Jeremiah read to us, is in the midst of a longer teaching, a longer series of teachings of Jesus about discipleship. And we really pick up Jesus continuing in this theme of discipleship, what it takes to follow him. So when Jesus uses these illustrations, graphic as they are, cut off your hand, cut off your foot, pluck out your eye if they're causing you to sin. Two questions come to mind. First, what is Jesus really saying to us? And secondly, is he saying what I think he's saying? <laughs> And I want us to kind of answer that this way. First, what did he say? And then secondly, why did he say it? Or better yet, what was he really after? Again, verse 43 is so graphic. If your hand causes you to sin, you can have the image, right? Perhaps a thief goes and takes something that doesn't belong to them. Or someone comes up and slaps someone else in, in the face in violence. He says, whatever it is, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Jesus is using a really simple if-then construction. You know, maybe, maybe Jesus really wasn't meaning what he said. Have you ever do that? You get to scripture and you read something, it doesn't make sense, and so you figure there must be something wrong with the text. Years ago, a friend of mine taught me, Terrell, if you come to a text and it doesn't make sense, the problem is not with the text, it's with you trying to interpret it. Go back to the text. 
But we could look at it and say, okay, maybe we're missing something in the translation. It could be that when he says, if your hand causes you to sin, well, that's not so good. You need to kind of say, my bad, I shouldn't have done that. My hand caused me to sin. And actually, there is a slight discrepancy in the Greek that gets translated to sin. But it's not over the cutoff part. That's really clear. Actually, the first part, if your hand causes you to sin, literally the word there is it causes you to stumble. And again, for those of us who try to work our way out of the text to think, okay, it can't be saying what I think it's saying. Oh, it means to stumble. Well, you know, that almost sounds like it's an accident, right? Like you're walking in the woods and you trip over a root. I stumbled. I love the way it's put in the King James Version, if thy hand offendeth thee. It sounds as, as if Jesus is talking about a hand being impolite, being rude, kind of like chewing gum at a debutante ball. But the word here, to stumble, literally means to trap, to ensnare, to trip you up, to derail you on the progress that you're making. And we have to wonder, when Jesus says, if your hand causes you to be derailed, to trip you up, derail me from what? Trip me up from what? Well, you have to look a bit further in the text. If you have a Bible, do. We're in Mark Mark chapter 9. He says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell. You see, what Jesus has in mind as he's giving this outrageous picture is this journey that we're on with him, a journey of discipleship, a journey that he's already set out with bold terms. You want to be my follower? Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. Follow me. And he has in mind this journey of faith that we're on by which we enter true life. And he's saying if there's something that causes you to stumble in that journey, that impedes your progress in following him, that slows you down, trips you up, turns you around, or if you do something that causes someone else to stumble, if your feet cause you to lag behind, if your eye wanders so that you start walking into trees, Jesus is so clear. He's saying, deal with it. Don't put up with it and don't get used to it. Deal with it immediately. And it's almost ruthless, the language he's using as he says, deal with it. Why? Well, Jesus puts it this way. It's better to get life while limping than with two good feet to be eternally separated from God. Clearly, Jesus is using hyperbole. And some cultures, some religious cultures actually do say, cut it off, the offending member. And they do. But that's not what Jesus is really saying. He's overstating that point of cut it off because the point he's really making is so vitally important. He wants us to have life. So he says it in an almost outrageous way. If you have any impediment in your life that derails you on your journey to enter into life with Christ, get rid of it. 
Be ruthless about it. Take drastic measures if you have to so that you can enter life. You know, I think one of the reasons that we stumble a bit with this passage, we wonder, what are you really saying here, Jesus? Is because so often I think we get confused about what the whole point of the Bible is, what the real goal of Christianity is. So often we reduce Christianity to mere morality, right? That Christianity is all about being good, or at least being better than most. And we know that because we're so busy comparing ourselves to other people to get a sense of how we're doing. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians says that when we class or compare ourselves by one another, we are without understanding. Do you realize what he's saying? He's saying that when we start comparing ourselves to other people, we fall into a comparison trap. And that trap captures us. And the first thing we lose is not our mobility, but it's our understanding. Understanding of what? Well, one of the most important things you or I will understand. It's who we really are. You see, when we're comparing ourselves to other people, have you ever noticed you tend to compare yourself to people who are worse than you are? <laughs> I remember when I was a kid. You know what you did when you were a kid. You get your test back from the teacher. You'd open it up to see what your grade was. And then what was the next thing we did? We turned to the right and to the left to see how the other people did. And if we found someone who did better than we did, we quickly avert our eyes to find someone else who did worse than we did. And then we feel better about ourselves. But that's just kid stuff, right? We don't still do that kind of thing. We don't class and compare ourselves based on morality or finances or jobs or titles or positions or reputations in order to get a, a clear sense of who we are. I tell you, comparison's fun, but we have to make sure we know to whom we should compare ourselves. And that would be Christ and Christ alone. We have been made in the image of God, not in the image of one another. Why in the world would we, would we compare ourselves to busted, broken, ragtag prototypes when we have the one true mark? in the character of Christ. If we want to know who we really are and how we're really doing, we compare ourselves to him. I know you say, but if I do that, I'll always fall short. Now you're catching on. Mm -hmm. That's right. Now we have a clearer picture of who we are as we compare our capacity to love to the one who is love. And then seeing him as he is, we begin to see ourselves as we truly are. And how much grander is the love and the mercy and grace of God when we do and we realize, and this is who I really am, and you love me still. No, I think so often we do reduce Christianity to mere morality. And the greatest shame of it all is that we miss God completely in the process. Jesus is using this hyperbole, this outrageous statement, cut it off, tear it out, because of what is at stake as far as he's concerned. You see, on the one hand, it sounds over the top. We get confused about what Jesus is telling us to value here. If I was to hold up the Bible to the average person and say, okay, what's the point of the Bible? What's the plot? What's the story? What's it really all about? Do you realize that most people would say, well, I'll tell you what the Bible's about. It's about do and don't and right and wrong and ought and should. 
That's what the Bible's about. It tells you what you ought to do and what you ought not to do. But it's not just the average person. Most people sitting in the pews and churches would say the same thing. That that's the point of the story. What's right, what's wrong, and what you got to do to be right, and what you do that makes you wrong. Well, the problem is, that's not the story. That's not what the Bible is fundamentally about. That's not the plot. It's not about good, bad, do, don't, right, wrong, and what it takes to be good moral people. That's not what the Bible's about. Surely, it involves it, good and bad. I mean, there are plenty of thou shalts and thou shalt nots. But that's not the plot. That's not the point. That's not the core of our faith, and it's not the core of the story of the scriptures. You see, the Bible isn't fundamentally about good and bad and right and wrong. Fundamentally, it's about life and death and where they come from. You remember, go back to the very beginning of the Bible, the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 3. We have the story of creation, and in it there's this beautiful, idyllic Eden, and in it there are there are trees, and two in particular are named. Only two are named. One is the tree of life. And the idea is that if you were to eat of the fruit of the tree of life, you would live. And the other is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if you eat of it, God said, you will have bad morals. No, it's not what he said at all. Eat of it and you will die. There it is in the very beginning. Not good, bad, right, wrong but life and death. Take the story of the people of God a bit further. Go to Moses in the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 30. Moses is speaking to God's people and he's given them his laws, his commandments, his statutes. And in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19, listen to what Moses says. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you, what? Good behavior, bad behavior, good ethics, bad ethics. No. He said, I have put before you today life and death. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast his ways. For he is your life and your length of days. Fast forward to the New Testament in Jesus's ministry in Matthew chapter 7, verse 13. And Jesus said, enter by the narrow gate for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to what? Bad morals? No, destruction. And narrow is the gate and hard is the way that leads to life. Jesus says, I've come that you may have life and have it to the full. So do you see the disservice we do to the purposes of God when we take Christianity and reduce it to mere morality? A morality that we think that by some kind of good-natured spiritual bootstrapism, we can pull ourselves up and go do this thing that God has told us to do. Do you realize what that means we're doing? Being called a people of grace we still live by law. The law has purposes. The law is good. The law has purposes of revealing to us the way we ought to go. 
that as we decide which way to go, we have a guide. But the law in and of itself is absolutely powerless to have us go that way. The law so often is like the white lines along the curving mountain road on either the left or the right. And as you drive the car on the mountain road, you can look beyond the white painted line and you can see the fall off of 500 feet down the side of the mountain. But that white line is there to say, this is as far as you could go. But it has absolutely no power to keep you from going over it. That's the law. The law can highlight our sinfulness to us, but it has no power to change us because the law is outside of us. And our problem is on the inside because Jesus was so clear that our sin is a problem of the heart. The way I like to put it is we have busted wannas, busted wills, wicked wills, if you will. And anybody who is in the South knows what wicked means. And here's why. Because the root of the word wicked is the same root from which we get the word wicker. It just means bent. And how many times have you sat on a porch in a wicker chair of a bent straw chair? And that is the picture of our wills bent away from God. No wonder when God began to tell his people of what he would do to win us back so that we might become his people, he sent his prophets to say that he would take his law as he spoke through Jeremiah and Ezekiel, and he would take that law, which heretofore was outside of us, so that we would look at the law and say, yes, that's a good law, and this is the way I should go, but the doing of it isn't in me. And he said, I will take that law and I will put it in you. I will give you a new heart. I will pour my spirit in you so that by receiving him in us, we might now have, wait for it, life. And by that life in Christ, live no longer for ourselves, but for him. So what do we do with the sin that is there in our lives? I like the way that John Piper describes, uh, it's a thoughtful definition of sin, there's so many ways to think of sin. Sin means to miss the mark. It's a, it's a term taken from archery, where the archer would take the arrow out of the quiver and put it in the bow, pull the bow back, look at a target, and the very, very center of the target was the bullseye. And so releasing the arrow, the arrow shoots toward the target. And if it hits anything other than the bullseye, the Greek word, one of the Greek words for sin, but the Greek word for missing that mark is hamartia which means miss the mark. So Apostle Paul puts it this way, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So what's the mark? The glory of God, the manifest character of God. That's the mark that he intends for us. And to miss it by a little or a lot, that's sin. And the wage of sin is death. 
So now do we begin to understand a bit better why Jesus would say, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes it, pluck it out. Because it would be better to enter life lame and blind than with good eyes, good feet, good hands, enter into hell. You see, his point of focus isn't the hand, the foot, or the eye. It's life and death. And he has come that we would have life. Piper says this, what is sin? Sin is the glory of God, not honored. The holiness of God, not reverenced. The greatness of God, not admired. The power of God, not praised. The truth of God, not sought. The wisdom of God, not esteemed. The beauty of God, not treasured. The goodness of God, not savored. The faithfulness of God, not trusted. The promises of God, not believed. The commandments of God, not obeyed. The justice of God, not respected. The wrath of God, not feared. The grace of God, not cherished. The presence of God, not prized. The person of God, not loved. That is sin. It is a rejection of God himself and the life that he offers us as a gift. And glory to God that in his love for us, he gave us his son that by receiving him, we would have this life in us. The very spirit of God placed in us as God had promised he would. And with Jesus coming in to live with us, the very person who was the embodiment of the law kept it all perfectly. Now that would be in us. Received by faith and lived by faith. So that now, as we might stumble, as we might pick up something we ought not, see something we might not, strive towards something that would take us away from that life, we now know that we need to only what the Apostle John tells us in 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There is a grace that is available to the repentant sinner. Another way to think of it is this. Through Jesus, we don't need perfect righteousness, just repentant helplessness to access the presence of God. Tim Keller wrote that recently. J.C. Ryle, in his Magisterium on Holiness, says, he who would take great strides in holiness must first of all consider the weightiness of sin. But we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. We don't have to try harder. We don't have to pull ourselves up by the spiritual bootstraps. We don't have to set out in life to compare ourselves, to somehow get a sense of being better than most, so that perhaps one day we could stand before God's throne to say, yes, I know I stumbled. I know I didn't quite get it right enough, but I did it better than most. Now, we go as those covered by the blood of Christ, indwelt by God himself in the power of the Spirit, having received him by faith, and knowing that in this life we live, when we do see our hand and our foot and our eye lead us, reflecting 
what's in our hearts. We need only turn, repent. As James, the brother of the Lord, tells us today, weep, mourn, and turn to him to know the fullness of forgiveness and to step even further into this life that he has for us. Do's and don'ts and rights and wrongs, yeah, it's full of them. It's just not the point. It's life and death and the life that he's come to bring by having Jesus die for us so that he might bring life to all who trust him, who say, yes, I believe that you are the son of the living God and I receive you in my life. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for these words to us that at first can be confusing, wondering what Jesus are you really saying? We thank you for the way that you use it to draw our attention to your desire for us to have life and have it to the full. Thank you. Thank you for what you've done for us. Thank you for what you've made possible for us in Christ. We ask this and everything in Jesus' name. Amen.